As Minnesota sports fans, you know what I mean. Friday through Sunday of last week, let's just kind of rethink this for a second. The Twins had to win three games. And they won Friday, they won Saturday, and then Sunday, the last game at the Dome, they win the game. How exciting. And and, and not only was it exciting, but they actually set up because they thought possibly it would be the last game in the Dome where all these things had occurred. And so... How many saw all the stuff afterwards? Okay, you kind of watch this thing and, and they're bringing people on and teams and all that have played in the past and these videos. And, and it's this great celebration thinking it could be the last game and they win it. And then Monday. Anybody remember what happened Monday? It's the match for the ages. The age was Brett Favre. And the undefeated Vikings take on their border rivals and and Brett's former team on Monday night football, national stage. And they play. And it lives up to the hype, right? At least for Viking fans. Um, And there's hysteria as you're all waiting for the noon game. So let's go. Anyway, no, um... And then Tuesday, after 162 games of baseball, it comes down to a tie between the Twins and the Tigers. And and they're forced to a play-in game on Tuesday night. And, and, And they come together and they play this game. And I have a long range task force meeting. I'm sitting in this meeting with these people and I look across the table and there's one guy who looks like he's deep in thought or he's praying or he's really tired or he's reflective and the table's here and his head's down and and not till after the, almost the whole meeting we find out he's watching pitch by pitch on his Blackberry <laughs> I get out of the meeting and into my car and as I turn on the game I hear what a game the game's just ended the game of a lifetime it will be played and if you had seen this you know on and on and I'm calling up my wife and going you tivoed that didn't you and she did and then um, you're probably wondering right now why I'm telling you all this just because it's a lot of fun to be honest you know (laughs) we won't go to the cups anyway um I say all this because one of the interviews I thought was very interesting and it kind of piqued my attention. Uh, Jared Allen. I mean, he's not Mr. Trendy. Any of you ever seen Jared Allen? He's Hulk of a guy. In fact, every time you, you, you see Jared Allen in an interview, they're, they're often asking him one question. This defensive end who can just, he just motors all day long. And, and, and they ask him about this um, hairstyle he has. He, he wears a mullet. And everyone's asking, in fact, one newscaster actually had on a mullet. And they're asking me, is this a trend? Is this a fad that you're trying to start? And his response always to people is, no, um, I'm not trying to start a trend. It's not a, a hairstyle. It's a lifestyle. One that I want to stay far from. It's a lifestyle. Now, what I think is interesting about that, as I was preparing and thinking about this message, one of the things that just jumped out at me when I was looking at this passage of Scripture is what Jesus says, which really the Bible says from the very beginning is this, relational healing, living in reconciled relationships, living right with God and right with one another. 
This is not some series that we're doing that we kind of hope promote it a little bit. It's not a fad. It's not a trend. We're really calling people to a way of life. And as we come to the end of the series, I'm excited to just say, folks, we are, we are hungry to learn how to be people that live this lifestyle of relating to one another in healthy communication patterns, healthy ways when conflict comes our way, so that we can be people who are right with God and right with one another. And so it's interesting, when you look at Luke chapter 17, verse 1 through 3, you'll see that in this passage of Scripture, staying well connected, he says, is not a lifestyle. It is a lifestyle, it's not a trend. And, and as I was looking at this passage, and I've seen and, and gone through this passage throughout my life, when I've read the Bible, I've come to this passage of Scripture, I've often just kind of gone through it and, and I thought, I don't really get how it fits. What is Luke thinking? And did Jesus pull these, you know, was he just pulling some different teachings of Jesus together? But when you look at this, you, you see that there really is a, a method to his madness. There's a reason why he puts this together. He begins in, and he's talking to the, to the Pharisees about the, the, the lost sheep and coin and son. And it's really a story to the Pharisees because it's all about the older brother. You, you've missed the whole parable if you don't really catch that part. And then he goes on and he talks about the shrewd manager and about the way that you use the gifts that God has given you. And you can either hoard them and and take them yourself. But even a shrewd person knows that you buy friends in in this world so that you have networks in case you lose your job. That's kind of his point. Even in this world, people who would be wise with what God has given them will, will seek to do things so that they will, in a sense, put themselves in a position that they've used it in ways that um, encourage other people. So someday they'll have people go, boy, thank you. And then he, he goes on, and the last thing he starts talking about is this, this parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And all of it is around this idea of, 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 of these, these spiritually religious people and how they were off on their value system. And so then he comes to verse 1, and you, you wonder, why, what is Luke saying, and why is Jesus making this teaching? And he, he's speaking to his disciples. He, he's specifically drawing them away for a second. He says, I want to share with you something. Here is the whole message. It's very simple. Things that cause people to sin are bound to come. Verse 1. But woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. It's a better experience, he says, a violent death than to cause one of these little ones to sin. And and the word little one is interesting because it, it, it... it has been used in another context, if you go to Matthew in some places, and it's, he's talking about children. He's talking about those who are naive and kind of innocent and, and, and seeking to live out their, their life that, that God has given them. In this context, he's obviously talking about those people who are naive and innocent in one sense, not innocent in the sense that they haven't sinned or they haven't done wrong things, but they innocently hunger to know God. And there are people who, by what they do, cause such offense and such injury that they, they keep people from knowing this loving and gracious God. And they're not... They're not the scum of the earth people. It's the religiously proud people that create that kind of injury. And so he makes this point and he, and he says in that verse, that very first part, things that cause people to sin are bound to come. The idea that we've talked about before, conflict is inevitable. You can't escape it. It's inescapable. And then um, the Amplified Bible, I think, it says it in a, in a way that helps you understand the word sin more clearly here. Because he's not using the word um, uh, sin in the sense of, of failing to measure up or even the trespassing kind of sin. The Amplified Bible puts it this way. 
Jesus turns to his disciples and he says temptations or snares or traps set to entice people to sin are sure to come. But woe to him by or who through they, they come. The word temptations here, the word that is in the NIV as sin, is the word scandala. And in the Greek it means the bait stick of a trap. Okay? It's that which is used to tempt one into sin. It's, it's, it's that, that, that part of the trap that causes one to be allured into and then become trapped. I was sharing with someone early before the first service about, and they were telling me about a certain kind of wrench that they needed because they had something happen, and I'm, I'm looking at them like with a blank stare because I'm about as mechanical as nothing. And I said, you're going to have to share with me what that wrench is like and told me a little bit about it. And then I just, I told them, I said, you know, the most mechanical thing is what I'll talk about in the service today is that I've learned how to set traps. I'm not a big trapper, except for a few years ago, we started getting some vermins in our hobby farm barn. So I went out and got a live trap. You know, um, the kids are saying, make sure it's a live trap. So I get a live trap, and I'm learning how to set the bait. And I got really good at it, you guys. I've caught three raccoon. I, I've caught um, two possum. I've caught one woodchuck and one skunk. So I know something about bait sticks. And I've been setting these traps. And, and what Jesus is saying is the word here for a scandal, the word is offense. That, that people will do things that will offend you. They will injure you. And the idea is it's just like that trap, that once you get them trapped, you can do about anything with them. It's really amazing to me. Even with a skunk, which was one that I really looked and researched on. Once I'm sitting, I had it, I thought it was one, and they put all this tarp over it and all the rest of the stuff, and they tell you, and I was even able to handle a skunk without getting sprayed. You see, what, what, what this thing does is he says that you will need to understand that it is inevitable. You will walk out of this room probably today and it is possible someone who loves you and is close to you. It is possible that someone may not even um, be aware of it, but they are going to offend you. They are going to injure you. And when they injure you, it is this sense that you will be trapped. And in that trap, you are now in the hands of someone else. Have you ever thought of it that way? Have you ever thought of the fact that, that the offense that has been done to you, whether it's real or perceived, puts you in a place where you're trapped? There's a man who writes a whole book on this. His name is John Bevere. He titles the book, The Bait of Satan. Your response determines your future. And he uses this passage of scripture, chapter 17, verse 1, as the foundation of his book. He makes the point that Satan's most deceptive snare to get you out of the will of God is this bait, the offense, the injury, whether it's real or perceived. Quoting Luke 17.1, Bevere says, Jesus says, which is a literal translation, it is impossible, but that offense will come. He says most people who are ensnared by the bait of Satan don't even realize it. So don't be fooled. You will encounter offense. You will leave this place and there will be an opportunity coming your way where there will be relational brokenness and you are going to have to make a decision. It's up to you, he says, how you're going to let it affect your relationship with God and with others. And your response will determine your future. So let me ask you practically to think for a moment and say, 
Are you carrying an injury today? Been offended this last week. I don't care if it's real or perceived. And what have you done with it? Why don't you think for a second? You're going to walk out of here and you may have a great day and the Vikings may actually win and the Twins might win tonight and yet tomorrow, in the midst of all your euphoria, someone's going to somehow either verbally hit you or in some way do something that really hits and hurts. And what will you do with it? He, he, he makes this point, Bavir does. Jesus stated it is possible to be delivered from this bait and stay free from remaining offended and escaping a victim mentality. What we talked about last week, what we looked at the story where Jesus said, forgive, and if you don't, you will be tormented. Isn't it interesting? He uses the same idea with the same kind of word here, thus bait with a trap. He says, if you do not forgive like the Father in heaven has forgiven you, you will walk out of here and you will be put, he says, into jail with the torturers, the tormentors. You're not only going to be trapped, but your, your resentment and, and the bitterness and the, the anger turned inward and the self-pity begin to trap you into something that, that will put you in a place where you will not know and experience the joy of God and it will cut you off from someone whom God wants you to be connected to. And so he says, very simply, watch yourselves. And I think he does that because it's, it's really easy as you go on and we look at the rest of this chapter. For people who have experienced God's forgiveness, who, who have recognized that they have, that have offended God, and you, you recognize the fact that you have actually hurt other people, and you've lived with the sense of guilt and shame, and then one day you heard this incredible message that there is a God who loves you, and His salvation is free. His relationship with you and the, the ability to be reconciled and one with Him and to move into friendly terms once again with this God is, is completely a gift. And you feel this burden rolled from your back. And you begin to experience it and walk that out. And then you're offended. But you fail then to give the same thing. He says, watch out. When you experience this and you move into this, it's really easy to move into a place of pride. It's easy to move into a place where you don't even realize that you're trapped. So he continues with these instructions. And and these are really... Gosh, you guys, when I, when I was working through this in my younger years, um, I really struggled with this next verse. He says in verse 3, If your brother sins, or you can use the word injures you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. So the idea is that it is something that has been done towards you. Again, real or perceived. And then he says, if he sins against you seven times, now the mark is in a day. And seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. Forgive him. I mean, that's a tall order, isn't it? I mean, first of all, I just have to say, Jesus is talking about forgiveness. There is this other aspect of it, and I didn't mention this in the first service, but I'll mention it here. There is this sense that that forgiveness is something that he always calls us to do. It's unlimited, but there is a sense, too, where trust calls for some kind of boundary. So I need to say, there are some people who are safe, and, and you still need to deal with safe boundaries. But here's the point of what Jesus is saying. He's saying the lifestyle of a follower of Jesus lives seeking not to offend other people, Willing all the time to get into it, to confront, to dialogue, to work things out, 
and always forgiving, even if it's seven times in a day. The number seven is really interesting. The Bible uses numbers for certain reasons. There's, there's actual meaning behind the numbers. So when he talks about the number seven, he, he's talking about this idea of completeness or this sense of, of, of a perfecting of something or a maturing of something. And the words, that, that number seven in, in the Old Testament would often refer to this completeness sense. And so he's, he's not saying that if someone offends you seven times in one day, you know, let's say three times in the morning you're at work and, and you're going, oh man, and three times you come back to you and they say, I'm so sorry, and you forgive them. And then all of a sudden at the lunch table, they do it again and you forgive them four. Now you're starting to count it five, six. And just as you're going out the door, they do it one more time. And you're thinking to yourself, Jesus said seven times. So if it comes in eighth, forget it. Right? It's not what he's saying. And see, when you think about this, this whole idea of, of seven times, you need to think of other times Jesus taught. We looked at the story last week, the story where, where Jesus talks about this um, guy who received this incredible forgiveness of a debt that he had who went out and then held another guy um, prisoner for a small amount of debt and threw him into to jail for that small amount of debt. We saw the story, but you know what precedes the question of that, that, that preceded that story? The question that was asked? Peter after he's listening to Jesus talking about going to your brother and making sure that things are right and so you can be in relationship with one another, Peter's beginning to think through. And he says to Jesus, just before he tells the story, he says, well, you know, Jesus, um, trying to get this forgiveness thing. He says, how many times should I forgive? Up to maybe seven times, Jesus? His point is, almost as, as humanly as I'm able to do so, you know, we look at this sense of the, the maturity of, a, of a, this perfected kind of person who is in relationship with God. Is that about the amount that I'm supposed to forgive? You remember what Jesus says? He says, seven times 70. I mean, he raises the stakes so high, there's no way that you can humanly think about that. Someone is going to sin against you within a day, seven times 70, and come back to you and say, would you forgive me? And he says, you're to be in this position where you continually forgive. Now, you have to know the numbers again are important. You go back to the book of Daniel, and Daniel, that is the one place where that number is used again. And it's used in that sense because God is saying, I am going to discipline my people for seven times 70 Weeks for this period of time, the seven times 70, and it's going to be this long. He's basically saying it will be the extent of what I can do. All that I am will bring about what needs to happen here. And so when you, when you think of it in that sense, Peter is coming to Jesus and he's saying, do I forgive as much as I humanly can with some of your power? And, and Jesus looks at him and goes, no, you need to forgive like God. With only his power. You need to come to the place where even in this you go, I, I just can't do this anymore. Remember Jesus said, happy, blessed are those who are poor, who are broken, those who are bankrupt. I don't have any more forgiveness to give. And God goes, thank you. That's exactly where I wanted you. Because this whole matter of forgiveness is not about you. It's about you giving what I have given you. It's about my power and my love flowing through you. It's about my grace and my mercy. So you know what? It's going to take you beyond your ability humanly to do it. Up to seven times, folks, is not going to work. But it's going to take all of God to make that happen. 
And so that's why when you look at this, the disciples are kind of really a little bit, you know, weirded out, if you want to use that phrase, by what he's just said. They're like thinking, you've got to be kidding. I mean, we're no dummies. This is impossible. So it says in verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And Jesus' response to this is really interesting. He, he, he says to him, you know, it's not about your faith, guys. You, you constantly go back to yourself. Isn't it interesting? We are constantly bringing the universe around ourselves. And, and he says to him this. He replied, if you have the faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. It is not about your ability. It is not about even your ability to believe in me. It is about me. And if you have this much little belief about me, I will pour out my resources into you so that you can do what you could never do on your own. That's the gospel. This is not about religion. This is all about us being humble people, seeking after God, allowing Him to begin to flow through us so that we can begin to listen to what He's doing and we can begin to move into those things that He's doing so that His abilities can flow through us to do the things that we could never do. And when we do that, uprooting mulberry trees is like nothing. When we look at some of the things that we go, God, we'd really like to do this for you as a body, and we start to turn to God and say, God, you know what? Just make us vessels that pour through us, you, like you did through Jesus. And we will be amazed. What we talk about here before about some of the announcements of what God's doing, we won't even have enough time to tell about what God is doing. I, I get excited about that. But anyway, um, and now you might wonder why the next little story. I used to wonder about this. Because with such... With such little faith, seeing God do such big things, he just says, be careful, because it will lead to arrogance, just like you see in these religious leaders, the Pharisees. Because really all you're doing is being a servant. Look what he says. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Now, first of all, that's not the way our God treats us. We know in Revelation, he's going to say, come on in and we're going to have a feast. But he's saying, let's just look at the way the normal relationships work between a servant and a master. And then he makes a statement. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So also you, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we're unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. Staying well connected is a lifestyle. It's not a trend. What we want to do within this body is learn how to communicate in healthy ways. We want to learn how to deal with one another when conflict arises in ways that bring about a culture of peace where we learn how to live together. Don't ever think we won't have conflicts. Don't ever think we won't go through difficult times. We will do that. That's going to happen, said Jesus. But the person who is a follower of Jesus is, is one who will walk in humility, not in the pride of their flesh, but the person who will walk in humility and say, God, I want to follow you, I want to hear from you, and I want to do that in such a way that we promote this culture of peace, that we promote this opportunity for you to come along and to connect us with you and one another, and we will work towards that. We will commit ourselves to be that kind of people. 
Now, you think about it. That's an amazing thing for any kind of church because it's really tough to do it in, a, in your family, right? But when you think of a church, you're bringing a bunch of people from families. When you come together, we come with all our baggage and our ways of handling conflict, which we've talked about before. We actually do what was natural to us, not according to what the Scripture says, which is supernatural, which means you begin to listen to His wisdom and allow God to change the ways that we've learned to deal with conflict. When we come to the point we recognize, God, I need your help in this. I'm willing to be humbled. I recognize, let's say in your case, you may go, I recognize when conflict comes, I just want to run. And some of you have been running from that in your marriages. And God's saying, if you really want energy in your marriage, you need to come together. You need to begin to bring this stuff and get real about it. And you may need the help of someone else. And some of you in a marriage or in a, in a work situation environment or with friends, when conflict comes, you get really big and you get really scary because you're going to over, you're just going to walk over this. And when we come together as a body, one of the things that we can do, can you, can you imagine, can you imagine a place where people learn to love one another and listen to one another? It doesn't mean you're going to get your way. But where we learn to love and listen to one another, that we work together over time and let God do what He needs to do. So He creates within us these patterns where we learn how to healthily, you know, to relate to one another. And when we begin to do that, guess what? We start, more people come in and they learn how to do that. And then not only that, we go out where we work and we go out where we live and we go out where we go to school and we go out where we are in our friendships with people and we're learning these things here that we can bring it to other people. That's what Jesus intended for the family, the church to be. It's the hope of the world because where else do they train you and teach you as a group of people to live this way so that it becomes a lifestyle not just a sermon series that is a trend for people and so that's what i think jesus is saying so let me give you some practical just what i call principles on how to stay well connected staying well connected i believe involves these guidelines and the first is this when, you, when you're in a situation of conflict, when you're beginning to experience this, one of our tendencies is to want to, to move towards the issues right away rather than the relationship. So here's the first principle. Focus on reconciliation, not resolution. This is huge. There is a big difference between reconciliation and resolution. Reconciliation is about relationship. It's about moving together so that you can be friendly towards one another so that then you can begin to deal with the issues and resolve them. But when you come together and if you haven't done the relationship where you begin to agree and you begin to set at least the baseline of trust, there's no way you're going to start to resolve issues. It'll break down again and again. Jesus says this in Matthew 18. He says, if your brother sins against you or offends you. And again, you need to look at this. The reason Jesus is saying this is because it may be a real offense or it may be a perceived offense. You need to go to him and show him what you see as a fault or perceive to be a fault. This, all this requires incredible humility. Living with Jesus, following Jesus, is the path of humility. It's the ability to say before God, I don't get it all, I don't see it all, I'm willing to just listen and, and hear and be in a place where I can grow in understanding and seek to develop the kind of relationships that bring about healing. And so, 
this whole idea of, of, of reconciliation um, versus resolving issues. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just, as, just between the two of you. And if he listens, you should, you've won a brother over. You've actually begun to move towards a relationship where you can deal with the issues. That's what I think Jesus is saying. Restore relationships, you can begin to work on the issues. Do you know that God, your Heavenly Father, through the Lord Jesus Christ, what He did when He sent His Son was He brought reconciliation. He put us in a relationship where now we don't feel this guilt and shame. We're able to come to God in, in a trusting relationship, begin to know His love and His friendliness to us, and we can respond in that way. But do you know what? We have a lifetime of working on issues with God. Right? Wouldn't it be horrible if God came and said, let's resolve all your issues before you can have a relationship with me? Whoa! So we need to recognize that, that reconciliation can take place and you build on that trust, but to resolve the issues may take a long period of time. And sometimes the issues are of such a nature and the trust has been broken down in such a way that you can still be friends and you can still um, be in relationship, but you may have to part ways. The Bible is really clear on things like this. I praise God that the Bible is so human and so real. Paul and Barnabas at a certain point, after they had this incredible ministry together, they do all these things together. Barnabas wants to bring a guy named John Mark along, and, and, and Paul doesn't trust John because John Mark had deserted him at another point. I think Paul had some issues of, of betrayal and, and desertion. And I think he said, Barnabas, I just can't do it. And so they, it says they had such a sharp disagreement that they went their own ways, and God still used them. But they didn't go away. I don't think enemies, they went away, re- reconciled, and said, God... We can't resolve these now. We're trusting that over time you will. And it says in the Word of God it did. Sometimes when those kind of situations come and you have these issues, that's one of the reasons why counseling and therapy is, I think, a helpful thing. You bring in a third party because sometimes that third person can say things that you can't hear. I, know, I, I can tell you from being in some of those situations, my wife is going, he, I've been saying that for years. And you said it. That's why small groups are really good, folks, because sometimes if, you, if you're real in small groups, and it's not just about getting more head knowledge, but it's really about getting into one another's lives, these life groups where we, we seek to get into one another's lives, sometimes as you talk about your life, you can begin to hear things from other people so that you can begin to resolve the issues. Reconcile means to be in agreement, to restore to friendliness. The second, another just principle is remember harmony is more important than who is right. In God's priority system, when unity is at stake, harmony is more important than who is right in the situation. That simply means um, this. At times, you just got to go, you know, I really believe I'm right, but for the sake of what God is doing, I'm going to set that aside. Because relationship is more important than my being right. You ever, you ever come to that conclusion, understanding? I want to tell you, I think it's an incredible thing to begin to start to work through that. I remember in my own life, earlier, at a certain point in ministry, God began working on my life with a, a certain individual. And I remember feeling this distance from this individual because it was this thing that he wanted to be right, I want to be right. And I remember coming to him and saying, you know what, I don't care which one of us are right. I just want to be, I want you to know relationship is more important than who's right. Now, there's issues that we've got to work out between whatever is going on. But here's the important thing to me, that relationship matters. And then you need to deal with perceptions. That's why this whole thing requires humility. You need to be willing to say, this is how I perceived what you said or you did. This is my take on what happened. I often will do this in, 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 in marriage counseling situations because sometimes um, people don't realize how much our perceptions come into our conflict situations. 
I'll ask people, I'll ask the one person, I'll say, look at my hand and tell me what you see. And they'll look at it and they'll say, well, you know, I see some lines and some fingers, a palm. I see some calluses. And then I'll go to the other person and I'll turn my hand and I'll say, tell me what you see. And they'll say, well, I see nails and I see hair and knuckles. And, and I'm going, no, well, wait a second. You know, what happens often is people see and understand what is going because this, see, this is what they see. And, and sometimes it's perceptions that we have to just get underneath and understand what is going on. And we need to deal with those perceptions. It's so important when you, when you come into those situations with a sense of humility because sometimes we come in feeling so hurt and we don't recognize that some of the bruises that we carry are not really bruises from that other person. They may have just bumped you, but some of the bruises are so deep that they may say something or they may laugh in a certain way and immediately we respond defensively or get angry or we feel humiliated or whatever it is and we respond to what we see. And some of you need to realize sometimes those kind of things happen and all you're doing, you're not hitting deeply in someone, but you're just touching something. And if you come in and you start just fighting about, yeah, you, I, you hit me and, and you begin to get underneath that, you sometimes begin to see that the wound is something far deeper, the bruise is far deeper, and you can then work together to help one another understand how to relate. And then a, a, another is attack the problem, not the person. Just avoid attacking statements when you get together. All those statements, those you statements, like you never listen, you never show up on time, you never do this, you never do that. All they, all they come off to towards another person, if they don't have enough self-esteem and maturity, they, all they come off is, is, is things that are attacked. And you could even be right. Remember what we said about being right? And, and what, what God is calling us to do is, is, is I think, often you look at the way Jesus... How Jesus so often just asked questions because questions were ways of getting underneath things. It's getting understanding. So instead of saying, you do this, you do that, you do that. In many ways, you can say, this is what I feel. And you're able to put these into an I feel or this is what I, I perceive or this is how I've taken it. Those kind of statements move it away from what you are doing to this is how I'm taking it. So that person can engage in it. And then you move into this instead of statements because statements are designed to get you to, to, to get someone else to understand you. Questions help you understand them. And so I just encourage people, you know, don't attack the person. Understand the problem. Ask questions. Don't make statements. And the hardest one when you're working through conflict, let's say you've reconciled, but there are issues, is to be able to disagree without being disagreeable. Be able to say, you know what, we just don't see eye to eye on this, but you know what, What's important to me is relationship. Let's build this trust and let's begin to work through these issues and let's see where God leads us. Let's, let's stay in relationship to one another. And then the last, and I'll close with this and I'll ask you to really think through this one. So that you find yourself offended and you're dealing with this. This is what I encourage you to do. This is what you can so simply do. Bathe the entire thing in reflective prayer. I am convinced that prayer moves mountains because it gets our hearts aligned with God. And you're going to want to ask these questions as you pray and meditate on these things and let God work in your heart. And the first one is this. What can I do to glorify God in this conflict? 
And even when you meet with the person, if the person is of, of a, a follower of Christ, you might want to even say, let's make this a goal together. And then ask yourself when you're reflecting and you're praying and you're meditating upon this, what have I done to contribute to this conflict? And what will I do to help heal this conflict? I had a great moment the other day when someone came up to me and said, you know what, I just want to be a person who is about healing um, the conflicts within our body. I said, well, that's pretty cool. What might be some reasons why God allowed this conflict into my life? And what are the hurts and offenses I have experienced in this conflict? Because God needs to get underneath that. I am so excited because I really believe one of the things that God wants to do is cause each person in this body to understand that they have been given a ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5 says that. Every person has been called. Therefore, we are new creations in Christ. If you have said, I want to follow you, Jesus, and you accepted and received his grace and forgiveness in your life and, and come to this place of humility, admitting your need of him, that you are an offender and you have sinned and you have done things, and you move into this place, you have then moved yourself into a place where the Holy Spirit has entered you. You are a new person. You rely not on yourself but on God. And as you rely on God, guess what? He has given you and 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 you, and you everyone here a ministry to be a reconciler. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you. That you love so much us that from the very first page of this word, where you created everything good and every relationship right, you began a ministry of reconciling us to you, and you have called us to be that to one another, that the world would know this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.